His name is Frank. M.M. Banning and I were seated on the living room couch, watching her son playing outside in the hot, bright sun. The kid, dressed in a tattered tailcoat and morning pants accessorized with bare feet and a grubby face, looked like some fictional refugee from the pages of Oliver Twist. One who'd walked all the way to Los Angeles from Dickens's London and had slept in the ditches at night along the way. When I say Frank was playing, what I mean is that he was assaulting a peach tree with a yellow plastic baseball bat, scattering the green midsummer fruit as if the future of the human race depended upon it. Does he always dress like that, I asked? Some version of it. Hello and welcome to 2020. I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's January 6th and today we begin our initial look at Tree Fort Season 9 by meeting up with one of the authors appearing at Story Fort. Julia Claiborne Johnson. Her first novel, Be Frank With Me, was a Los Angeles Times bestseller, as well as one of six finalists chosen by the American Booksellers Association for Best Debut of 2016, and was recently a number one bestseller in humorous literary fiction on Amazon. Be Frank With Me also won an Audi Award for Best Female Narrator from the American Audio Publishers Association. Published in 2016 by William Morrow, Be Frank With Me introduces us to reclusive literary legend M.M. Mimi Banning, who has been holed up in her Bel Air mansion for years, but after falling prey to a Bernie Madoff-style Ponzi scheme, she's flat broke. Now Mimi must write a new book for the first time in decades, and to ensure the timely delivery of her manuscript, her New York publisher sends an assistant to monitor her progress. The prickly Mimi reluctantly complies with a few stipulations. No IB leaguers or English majors, must drive, cook, tidy, computer whiz, good with kids, quiet, discreet, sane. When Alice Whitley arrives at the Banning Mansion, she's put to work right away as a full-time companion to Frank, the writer's eccentric nine-year-old a boy with the wit of Noel Coward, the wardrobe of a 1930s movie star, and very little in common with his fellow fourth graders. Full of hearts and countless only in Hollywood moments, Be Frank With Me is a captivating and unconventional story of an unusual mother and son and the intrepid young woman who finds herself irresistibly pulled into their unforgettable world. Julia Claiborne Johnson will be appearing at Tree Fort Music Fest in downtown Boise at the end of March and has just turned in her second novel. It's an honor to be speaking with her today. How are you doing today? I'm so excited to talk to you because that was such a good introduction. Can you just introduce me everywhere I go? Just like walk down the street with me. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Yes. So last summer, I wrapped up Tree Fort 2019 by speaking with Tara Conklin, author of The Last Romantics. Um, she, uh -huh. she appeared last year, uh -huh. and she we talked about what she thought of as her unusual, unusual drafting process, one in which she wrote her book multiple times. Um, since then, uh -huh. I've been to a reading by Ann Patchett, uh -huh. who wrote The Dutch House in a really similar way. And um, I guess your fictional author made me think 
of drafting a little. And so we won't spoil anything in the book because I want listeners to enjoy Be Frank With Me. But could you speak a little bit about your own writing process? Hilariously, before I start, Tara Conklin and I have the same editor, just so you know. Oh. So, but um, my process, uh, well, I mean, there are two things I can talk to. One is how I happened to write this book, which was a process, and how I just, because I had to teach myself how to write a novel once I had the idea. So um, when I was young, I'm going to just ramble. (laughs) When I was young, I worked in the fiction department at Mademoiselle Magazine. And so um, I I had to read 10,000 manuscripts a year. And in the course of that, I realized that if you don't know, if you don't have a good story to tell, it doesn't matter how good a writer you are. It's, uh, you know, useless. So I never really thought I had a book in me. But then one day in my house, I had a good idea. And I was like, oh, I'd like to read that book. I think I'll write it. So what I did was I took three of my favorite novels because I didn't know how to write a novel. I'd never tried to write one. I was 50 when I started. Um, Bel Canto by Ann Patchett. Mm-hmm. And uh, what were the other? Oh, uh, I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. And then the other one hilariously was uh, Hunger Games. Because Hunger Games is like tight as a drum. And the first one is really well written. So I took those three books. This is me teaching myself how to write a book. And I wrote everything that happened on every page. Just to, so I could start to recognize the patterns and how the stories rose and fell and stuff like that. So that was super helpful because when you just read a book, you don't always see things. And I would write these idiotic notes to myself where like, this has happened three times already foreshadowing question mark, question mark, question mark. It would be so embarrassing if anybody saw the notes that I wrote about those. So then when I wrote that book, I knew what the like as soon as I thought of the beginning, this was all walking down my block. Within half a block, I was like, I know exactly how it's going to end. So I knew the last sentence, so I had something to go to. So then I had a very baroque system of keeping track of everything because I had all the there were there are four different characters. There's uh, Mimi, Frank. Well, they're really five. Mimi, Frank, Alice is our narrator, uh, Mr. Vargas, and. Who am I leaving out? Frank. Xander. Xander. Yes, Xander. That's who I'm leaving out. So they all had a different color post-it note. And I had a wall. And I would, like, I'd had start a chapter and say, okay, in this chapter, this is kind of what I want to have happen. And so I would just think of everything that might any one of those characters might do and stick it up on the wall. And then I'd go stand across the room and go, huh. Xander was blue, I think. I was like, huh, there's not a lot of Xander here. So maybe I need to get more Xander into this part. And, you know, Alice is slim. Although Alice was blue. It doesn't matter who was what color. But um, (laughs) it helped me visually see it. And then I had a door where I had all my post-it notes. I'd write the chapter. And as I wrote things that I decided to keep, I would leave it up there, but then I would take the things I hadn't used and stick them in a notebook. This is sounding very complicated. <laughs> so, but it really, like, it's so hard. The thing about a book, Douglas, is it's so huge. It's really hard to keep track of it. So the people who like uh, Tara must do the thing where she just, I think of it as the subway car system of writing where they just sit down and write and whoever gets on the subway car is in the story. And then when they step off, they're out, but I needed to plan. Like I couldn't, do it that way. And I know Ann Patchett's last book, she was struggling with it 
and she threw it out and started all over again. She wrote, rewrote it like three times or multiple. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have learned the, the misery of that with the second novel because the first novel was in first person. And, uh, and you know, the Alice is the narrator and she's kind of funny and sounds exactly like me. It's, you know, I don't have a very good imagination. So, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the second one I thought, well, I should do third person so I can, you know, stretch and grow as a writer. And so I wrote half of it and I turned it in to my editor and she called me and she said, and you know, I told her what the rest of it was going to be. She said, I don't know. I don't know. You know, uh, I think, um, I think you're all voiced. You're all throwaway jokes. So you need to start all over. And I was like, Oh dang. So I started all over from scratch and it had a six page prologue and then half of the book first person. So then my editor called me up and she said, I love the prologue. I hate the rest of it. (laughs) And I I don't even remember what the rest of it was, but it was nice because she bought it based on that six page prologue, you know, no pressure. So, uh, (laughs) so then, so then I did the thing again where like now, I mean, if you come to see me at story forward, I think they're going to show pictures of it because I have all the, crazy technique of like each chapter I have what each chapter says in it. And then I have another post-it note that says just the main thing that happens in it. And then I have another post-it note that has the first line of the chapter and the last line of the chapter. So I can keep, cause I want every, like the thing that was great about the hunger games, you know, make fun of it. If you will, every chapter was 10 pages long. You'd get to the end and you'd go, I got to go to sleep. And then you'd look at the first next chapter and the first line was so compelling or the last line had been so compelling that you're like, well, you know, the next chapter is only 10 pages. I'm just going to read the next chapter. And then it would be three in the morning. I read the whole thing straight through. So that was really what I wanted to get at. So that's why I have this crazy system that probably wouldn't work for anybody but me, but it, it makes me feel confident, which is (laughs) the hardest part about being a writer is feeling confident in what you're doing. So that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> well, it's it's so it's interesting because it's pulling me several directions, but mm-hmm. um, f- it it reminds me of so Frank is very literal and very rational, and so yeah. it, it I can see how your process seems really rational. You know, like you're mm-hmm. really thinking things through in a in a literal sort of way. Do you mm-hmm. you know what was it about Frank? I, I, that's the question. So like. Uh, was it Frank that was the idea or was it the, the... Oh, I'll tell you the idea, but I should tell you the other thing I had to do with Frank is he wears all these nutty outfits. So also for every chapter, I had to have a post-it note saying what he had on in that chapter. Because, you know, you don't want to wear the same cute outfit twice in a row. So that was another level of it. But um, <laughs> what happened was, and, you know, when I was young, uh, when I worked at Mademoiselle in the Fiction Department, then I was, after that, I was a... Uh, a fashion and beauty writer, which if you could see me would make you laugh hysterically because we look, all the the fashion writers looked like we'd fallen into our closet in the dark and just rolled out in whatever we found there. <laughs> so, but it, the, the fashion people, like Kate Spade was an assistant in the fashion department when I worked there. And there were all these incredibly fashionable people who were so 
beautiful in the way they put things together. It was so imaginative. And it was my first real exposure to visual genius. And they'd have to come explain the fashion story to us. But many of them were, you know, British. And so they also had beautiful voices. And they looked amazing and they'd come in and then they'd start telling me about the fashion story and they'd talk, talk, talk. And I'd be looking at them going, oh, wow, look at you. You're amazing. How did you think to put those things together? Like there was a girl named, uh, well, I shouldn't say her name. There was a girl who would wear a bustle every day. And you would look at her and think, I need a bustle. But <laughs> nobody needs a bustle. <laughs> but she could really sell you on it, you know. But they'd try to explain it to me. And I'd realize about five minutes in that nothing they had said had made any sense. But they were brilliant they were inarticulate but brilliant so that was one part of it that's part of why frank is the way he is because you know the fact that you could well there's a sentence in there that's something like she that alice the sort of babysitter character the assistant character would see him and try to find him on the playground and it, she said it was she was from nebraska she was like it's really easy because he looked like a peacock in a farmyard full of chickens you know and that was how the fashion people were but it also put a um, a bullseye target on his chest because he looked different. Because I would look at those fashion people and go, man, you're so impressive, but people must just have beat you half to death on the playground in middle school. So that was how the fashion part came up. But the, the real um, genesis of the story was my daughter at the time was, well, she's still my daughter, but <laughs> at that time she was 10 and that she was reading To Kill a Mockingbird for school. And I hadn't read it since I was 13, so I thought, oh, I'll read it at the same time, and then we could have a beautiful mother-daughter sharing thing, which we did not have. But it was interesting to read that book, because now, as a grown-up, I was like, oh, Boo Radley must be on the autism spectrum, which had never occurred to me when I read it the first time, because people didn't know back then what was up, you mm -hmm. know? They just thought it was weird, and so... My very next thought was, well, it's a lot easier to write a character like that than to than to raise one. And I was like, oh, that would be a really good book. So that's why Mimi had to be a writer, because she writes a character like that. Then she has a kid, and he's like that. And he's made himself a target because he's so flamboyant. So that's going to make it even more of a struggle. Because a lot of kids, books about kids on the spectrum, they're like math kids, or they don't dress in a way that, you know, draws attention to themselves. So... It was a lot of things. Another long answer to a short question. Did that help? <laughs> <laughs> Frank is just filled with facts. Mm -hmm. Did this, are these facts that you happen to know, or did this mm -hmm. book require just inordinate amounts of research? It did not. This is how I out myself as uh, the person that I am, because I knew almost every fact in there already, but it was because I had been a magazine writer for so long, and you have to do research for that. And, um, also, we live in Hollywood, like it's a maybe a 10 minute drive to the place where the handprints are in the cement from my house. And there's studios all around us. And my husband and I both love facts. And I remember um, when I was thinking about Frank, I was like, oh, I can make him a fashion person because I know something about that. And then um, here in Los Angeles, the old Cedar sinai building is the Scientology Center. And then I was like, and if he likes old Hollywood, I can use that fact. So it was really a hilarious coming together of like all of my facts that I had fit together into one character in a way that was kind of funny. So that was thrilling. Like that's what makes writing fun is when things 
like that come together because it's not fun sitting by yourself at your desk all day. So yeah, well, back to to drafting and and plotting. Uh huh. So it's interesting. The when I when I finished with it, I was I was left with this thought: Why did you begin? in the future. Like we didn't have any context to understand what you were talking about, but was that part of, uh, you know, the drafting process that you went through? Oh yeah. I can tell you exactly why. Cause when you go, I don't know if you do this, but when you go into a bookstore and you open a book and you read the first sentence and you think, Oh, this book, I don't know. I was like, so if I have a terrific first sentence, Oh, did you ever read a message from the goon squad? Yes. Have you ever read that book? Remember how in the beginning of that one, she's about to steal somebody puts their purse down on a bathroom floor while they're in a stall and she can see that she could take their wallet and I was like oh that's great like that's a good beginning to the character and that would that's I need something like that to start so I spent like I think I spent a solid month trying to think of what the first line would be do you Mm. have a copy of it right there with you so you can read what the first line of the book is is it there or I can go find one on my bookshelf if you don't have it but it's something it's something along the lines of because uh, because the station wagon blew up in the fire. Yes. Um, Frank and I had to go visit his mother in the hospital on the bus or something like that. And I was like, you know, if I picked that book up, I was like, man, stuff is going to blow up later. <laughs> and it's funny because I was telling you earlier how my husband used to write for Beavis and Butthead. And stuff was always blowing up in Beavis and Butthead. I was like, this is my little tribute to my husband. Something's <laughs> going to blow up later on. So that's why I started it there. And then I went back. And I really wanted you to see. I didn't want to start with their awkwardness together. I wanted them to start at a place where they were they were closed. And then you went back to see how their relationship grew. And then, oh, and I'll tell you another funny story that's about plotting, kind of. Because I've. All through the book, I knew what the last sentence was, as I told you. And it was always the last sentence for the whole five years. And so then um, my editor said to me, oh, my God, it's great. You did such a good job, you know, because after I got my eyes, I'm so proud of you. Um, but I think it needs another chapter. And I was like, what? She's like, just a little short chapter, because, you know, the last chapter is maybe five pages long. You know, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. But, you know, just think about it. Maybe it'll work. And so originally this book was going to be called Einstein's mom and it was going to be about Mimi because I thought it was so weird if you had a kid who was such a genius and you were just a regular person, like that would be such an odd situation to be in. So I think there's a passage in there where she talks about how Einstein's mother must've just said to him all the time, why don't you go comb your hair? Cause all she could see was the outside. <laughs> Cause that was what my mother would, not that I'm a genius, but my mother Every time she saw me, would say, why don't you go comb your hair? And so, but then Frank took over. So, but the original last line was really a last line from Mimi. And so I wrote this last chapter and I was able to bring back things, which I don't want to say, but you might realize what they were that had appeared earlier in the book and had just disappeared. I was like, oh, I can use that again. There's like a story about um, Dr. Livingston. Stanley Livingston, I was able to bring that back in um, a, a chocolate heart. And I was like, oh, my gosh, now I can use this. And then the last line that I ended up with should have been the last line all along because it was about Frank. So that was a victory that my editor must have somehow known was in me, but I didn't. That's why we love editors. 
<laughs> well, so uh, this podcast grew out of kind of a love of uh, coincidence and synchronicity. Mm-hmm. So there was a really interesting synchronicity or zeitgeisty moment in that you started working on your book and you were inspired by Harper Lee and Boo Radley, it sounds like a little bit. And then uh, she had another book come out. I know. And that was so funny because my book was being edited. It was in like the, I don't know if you've ever seen the big wide pages they put in and down the sides, they have the editorial comments. So it was like that. And I was going through that and my agent um, emailed me and she said, look at this. And it was that she, that she Harper Lee had sold I don't know if she hadn't sold, but they were coming out with a book that was a prequel to um, To Kill a Mockingbird. So all that had happened, and it would just chap me to no end that people go, well, you stole that idea from blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, I already had it. It was already there. But um, to me, she was more Salinger. But, um, but yeah, that, there's some Harper Lee to it, too. So Because, you know, you can understand how it is now. I had a, I have a friend who's an actress who is somewhat, you know, she's famous, but not like, you know, not like Scarlett Johansson famous or something, but, but you totally forget cause she's just a person. And so we'd be walking down the street together and suddenly somebody would go, Oh my God, it's you. <laughs> she's one of those approachable kind of famous people. And so both of us would jump out of our skin, her less than me cause she was worth used to it. And I just was so troubled by this. I was like, that would be so weird to just be like, you know, walking along minding your own business and suddenly out of a place of love, somebody like springs on you. So that whole thing about Mimi and there and their, you know, her fans, I thought that was super interesting. So I worked that into it too. The other fun part that I really enjoyed is, um, and it's just timely because last night was the golden globes. It's just this, this Hollywood and, uh-huh. You know, even speaking of that, you know, Tarantino kind of explores, you know, this, uh, the idea of, you know, older Hollywood and the studio system. And then, you know, so he, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he was kind of thinking about uh, structures that might, you know, were, were changing at the time, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's interesting, you know, that that whole world really informs the book via Frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause the way that sort of happened was, uh, I don't know if you have children, but when you have children and they're little, you can't watch Tarantino movies <laughs> in your house. So, but you, you can't can, watch Buster Keaton. Well, you can watch Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton's okay. But, uh, and, you know, my son, we took him to, they had, they used to have a silent movie house here. I think it finally went under. It's a long story about what happened to that. But um, we'd take him to Buster Keaton uh, movies, and he would just laugh himself silly over things like the guy turns around with the board over his shoulder because he had never seen it. You know, and it's like the oldest joke in the book, but it was new to him. So I thought that was fabulous. And then also um, we would have to watch either Disney movies or cartoons or you know, black and white movies because they weren't terrifying. So I got to watch a lot of black and white movies when my kids were little. And then we'd be sitting around going, man, look at, look at Fred Astaire, but he really knew how to dress, you know, like, and Chris used to work, my husband used to work at Frasier. Um, and he, that was on the Paramount lot. And the Paramount lot is just a fabulous place because like 
the where they had the gift shop in those days, that was where uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers would practice their dances. That was their studio. And so, and that's a, let's see, maybe a 15 minute walk from my house. So it's the, all of that is just all around us. So the old Hollywood is very strong in this neighborhood. So I don't, I think again, once I wandered off and didn't answer the question you asked, but, but there you have it. Welcome to my brain. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about this, this new book that you just turned in and did you, did you, has this process been unwinding for a little while? It sounds like so. I feel like it's forever, although it was less than with Frank, because Frank took me five years. But the nice thing about that was that um, nobody knew I was doing it, because I did it in secret, because I thought it was kind of embarrassing at my age to be writing a novel. So like my family knew, but nobody else knew. And um, that was very freeing. And I will tell you a story that has nothing to do with your question, but it's entertaining to me because um, I finished writing Frank on a, I think it was a Wednesday night at like 11. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find out who Ann Patchett's agent is and I'm going to write to her and she's going to take me as her client. And so I wrote a letter to her and I, I emailed her and I sent it off and I went to bed and I got up the next morning. I was getting my children ready for school at like six and she had written me back already. And she said, I want to see your manuscript. So that was incredibly thrilling. Like I'd done this secret thing. Nobody knew what was going on. And then I got this really fancy and she took it. There's a longer story, but I want to make you sit through the whole thing. But um, she took it right away. And, uh, you know, then it happened. But then the second time there were expectations and everybody you run into on the street would say, Hey, how's your book going? (laughs) And when your book is not going well, there is no more horrible question, you know? So I just, it was a lot harder this time. It didn't take as long, but I had to write three versions of it because the Frank one took so long to write that I was able to work it out more. And this one I needed to get it done. So, and I've already told you the painful story of that. So, but she, um, I heard back from her on Friday and she's like, oh, you did a great job with this revision. I just have to do something at the beginning. Cause it's such a big thing. You lose track of it. She's like, the beginning is kind of all over the place and it needs to, you need to work on the end, but that's the last chapter and the first chapter. So that's not much. That's not bad. So that was incredibly exciting. So when we get through talking, that's what I'm going to do. But um, did that answer your question? I don't know. Yes. And so then basically you you redrafted this thing three times, but you do have a completed manuscript that you you turned in recently. Exactly. And see, with Frank, I think I probably wrote like at least a thousand or two thousand pages while I was writing it. And then I would just throw stuff away because it was just me. But this time I probably wrote the same amount. Oh my gosh, Douglas, it was so traumatic because like I was on version three based on the six pages. And let's see, I can't think when that started. That was probably, I don't know, in August of last year. No, no, that can't be right. It must have been earlier in the year. Anyway, I wrote up to page like maybe 40 and then I just got stuck. And I would write all day for months, like three months. I was stuck in this one section, one chapter. And then suddenly it just opened up. So then I wrote the rest of the book between November and now, 
you know, which was a short time, it seemed like to me, but, but you, I processed it in so many different ways by then. I feel like I'm being boring, <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's sort of probably not the answer once again. <laughs> Are you able to give a, a quick pitch of what this one's about or is it mum's the word for the time? I wonder if it's mum's the word. I mean, it's, it's in Publishers Weekly. I can tell you a quick version. I can tell you where it came from. But it's completely made up. It's well, the completely... other interesting thing is publishing usually is kind of slow. And so if... It takes forever. I know. If you're turning it in now and, and you know, when yeah. when is this going to be published? In a year at the earliest. Yeah. So cause then I was like one of my bookstore friends. Because the nice thing about writing a book that people really love... She said, patting herself on the back. But I got, became really good friends with a lot of booksellers because they loved it, too. And it was fun for them to sell. So one of my bookstore friends and I were talking about it. And she's like, no, no, a year's good because then we have time to hype it. I was like, oh, please do. Please, you know, because my kids are in college. I got to pay for it somehow. <laughs> but um, in real life, um, well, you know what? I'm going to hang out. And I'm, Am I going to tell you? I don't know. Um now I'll tell you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to waffle so much. I just, I don't know. But it's been published in the Publishers Weekly, like the roundup of what it is. Um, in real life, my father was a very handsome man, and during the and he was born in 1916, so he's long dead. Um, he during the Depression, he worked at a divorce ranch outside of Reno, Nevada. Do you have you ever heard of these? Do you know what it is? No, I don't. People had to. Um, if you want to get a quickie divorce back in the thirties and the twenties, it was before the twenties. There's a whole explanation for it, but you would go to Reno or Nevada and live there for six weeks. And then you would get legal residence residency and they would, you could get a divorce then. And then people, and people would say, Oh, I'm going to stay. But then as soon as they got their divorce, they would leave. So they would have these dude ranches, but there were four divorcees. If you've ever seen the women, the black and white movie, um, they, one of the women goes to the divorce ranch because Claire Booth Luce got divorced, who wrote that, got divorced on divorce. Yeah, she went and stayed on the divorce ranch. So my father had worked as one of the cowboys because they would hire these handsome young men who could dance and had nice manners as cowboys, even if they weren't cowboys. They knew how to handle a horse. That was all they needed. And so I wrote a book about that that's completely made up because he's long dead i don't know what really happened but i did a lot of research about that so now i've read every book i could get my hands on and i went to reno and i went to the historical society and so it's a book told from his point of view because it's like it's not like gentlemen prefer blondes and it's brilliance but gentlemen prefers blondes is about a chorus girl and rich guys so in this book the guy who's our narrator is like the chorus girl which is a very unsettling position to be in if you're a guy in those days. That wasn't what you were used to. So he's shaken up by the whole thing. Hmm. Hi, Jenks and Sue. So. <laughs> well, so then how, how did you get wrangled into Treefort? Oh, I can tell you. It's hilarious. Um, we have, there are a couple of ways. We have a lot of neighbors in this neighborhood. It's an old, it's called Hancock Park. It's an old neighborhood. And a lot of times when they shoot movies that are set on the East Coast, they shoot them in our neighborhood. And for some reason, there are a ton of writers in this neighborhood. So one of my neighbors, two blocks over, is named Lydia Fitzpatrick. And she wrote a book called um, Lights All Night Long. 
and she's very fancy and a serious artist and everything, but also hilarious. And so we're friends and we go on walks together. And she said, um, oh, I'm going to go to this thing in Boise. It's called Tree Fort, you know. And I said, oh, my friend Mary Lowry is in graduate school there. Mary Lowry has a book coming out in March. And um, I would love to go to Boise. They should have me come too. So I sat down and wrote the guy who wrote the letter and said, hey, don't you want me to come too? Because I can come with Lydia and hang out. It'll be really fun. <laughs> and he said, okay. Oh, my God, yes. And so then I said, my husband teaches screenwriting at USC. And he's written on all these fabulous shows. Why don't you have screenwriters too? And he's like, okay. <laughs> so basically, I just invited myself. Well, well, great. Uh, what uh, what can we expect from you guys? Uh, well, we're. I think Lydia and Mary, Mary and I are going to do a panel together. Mary's going to be our interlocutor, and Lydia and I are going to talk probably about a process because she does like I did with the post-it notes. She had a whole room of her of her in-laws house her story went all the way around the room because her story is a very dark fabulous movie movie um should be a uh, book that said half in um russia and half in louisiana so she had a lot to keep track of so i think that's what they're going to have us talk about and it's interesting the thing you chose to read i've never read that aloud before and i was like oh that's such a good pick i hadn't thought about that because what i usually read is chapter eight where alice has to spend the first night alone with frank because she then she really realizes what it's like to be his parent full time because that was the very first chapter i wrote hmm. and it's kind of funny and it doesn't give stuff away so i read that one but the one you read i was like oh maybe i should start reading that one <laughs> it's it's interesting because it yeah, as you as you start in, you know, you're starting from this point of not really knowing what's going on, but you're introduced immediately to Frank on the bus and he he looks odd. Mm -hmm. And then you slowly integrate into his world and it does seem like as I was reading I'm, you know, he's he doesn't, you know, he he comes off, he's beating the the tree and there's all mm -hmm. the toys in the tree also. And mm -hmm. so, but it seems like as you enter into his world, some of that jarring, those jarring aspects kind of drop away and you just, right. you're used to, even when he does, you, you know, uh, have a moment where he either collapses or beats his head on something, uh -huh. mm -hmm. you, you understand his world a little better. Yeah. And that's what I hope. Cause you know, when I wrote that chapter eight, the one that I usually read, like, I didn't even think I was going to write a book. I just was like, that's kind of what, what, what's it? Because you know what that chapter is about? It's about every, when you have kids, there's so many ways they can find to kill themselves. And it's exhausting because you have to be on a high alert all the time. You know, like they could set the house on fire. They could all this stuff. And so I sat and I thought about, and, oh, I should say this. My mother was a doctor. And so when I was little, I had two older siblings who were, they were like two and three years older than me. She was always worried they'd kill me. So she would take me to the emergency room with her and sit me in the corner with crayons and a coloring book. And then I would see all the carnage, like all the ways you could get hurt. So I had that in my head. So I just sat down and thought of all the ways you could almost get killed without even trying as a kid. And so then that's how it started. And then I was like, oh, this is an interesting character. I need to have a sentence where things blow up then we'll write the rest, <laughs> you know, and like what's going to happen to him, you know, that's really the big question. So, well, it's, it's really fascinating. 
I w- if I were to have guessed, I would have thought that um, that maybe you as a person had an experience like Alice, you know, that you were like an au pair or something. Oh, no, no, no. I just, um, I grew, I saw a lot of emergency room stuff. I went, my kids went to public school and you see all kinds of children there. And, um, and they, what's the word? It's not integrate, but they, where they uh, mainstream kids who have issues. So they would have like kids in their class who had these kind of struggles, not, they, they weren't, they weren't fashion plates, but then that was my whole, and, you know, I think a lot of, uh, and I've read a lot and a lot of actors, I think might be a little spectrum because part of what's terrifying if from my understanding of it, if you're on the spectrum is you can't predict what the other person's going to say. So that's how there's that whole thing about him trying to learn how to act from the actors that he watches. Cause I don't know if you remember, he would mimic their facial expressions and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of actors or who might be a little spectrum are attracted to the fact that there's a script and they know like they can really immerse themselves completely in a character in a way that like is harder for some people. So they, they know what the other person is going to say and it's enormously com- uh, comforting. So again, I don't know if I answered what you asked, but it's like the stuff, it's really everything that I saw around me all the time kind of boiled down and mashed together and it turned out. Okay. I hope. Seems to. Well, so the other interesting thing is that it, I definitely could potentially envision this like on the screen as a film. <laughs> Do, have you had any interest in that regard? I, I, people have sniffed around it for years and somebody's interested in it right now. And I said to her, um, you know, I have to think, because the hardest part about writing a book, Douglas, is the idea. That's really hard because it has to sustain you for hundreds of pages. So I have to think of the idea for what my next book is going to be. And so I said to her, oh, you know what? Maybe while I'm trying to think of the next book, I could try to write it as a screenplay. And she was like, would you really? Oh, my God, that'd be so exciting. So now once I finish my edits on this new one, because it seems super visual to me, the whole Frank thing. So um, we'll see. From your lips to God's ears, that's all I can say. But people have been interested. They've been not interested. They take too long to make their mind up. Like somebody wanted to buy it last fall and they still haven't. Because usually what happens is your book sells right away for a book, for a movie. And then if it doesn't sell right away, it can take forever. So that's the bottom line. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, it's always, it's always interesting because sometimes, sometimes things that make sense, you know, in a book don't necessarily make sense on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can't go inside their brain, you yeah. know. So, like, the, the, have you seen Little Women yet? No. It's good, and um, it's very frolicsome. But um, she messed with the timeline because she, like, did future past, future past instead of going straight through. So you have to figure out a way in that will make it work and still be fresh and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's harder than you think. I suspect I'm, I will find out if I try to do it, so. But at least I understand who the characters are and what they, and it's so funny because they all seem so real to me. Like I think about Frank and think, oh, what's going on with Frank these days? How's he doing? You know, I wonder if Xander ever straightened out. You know, it's so funny to me that they become so real. And my husband would be talking to me, even with this book too. And he'll be like, oh, and I'll be saying, yeah, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And he'll say, you're with your other family, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> 
sorry. I'm sorry. But it makes you understand why people go crazy as writers because you spend so much time inside your head. It's hard to be on the outside again. Oh, can I tell you a fun fact that has nothing to do with anything? Out the out the window of my office, you can see this big fancy apartment building called the El Royale, and that's where Faulkner came, stayed when he came to um, live in Los Angeles to write for the movies. And that's why so many writers come out to write for the movies, and then they find they can't make it work because it's a different kind of a different tool set for some people. So. Well, so that's that's where I kind of want to end it. So, this was your your debut novel. You wrote it in secret. You mm-hmm. you sold it by just having a serendipity moment with, like Ann Patchett's. I had Moxie. That's what made me sell it. <laughs> Moxie, excellent. Yeah. So, but what were you doing before? And were oh, you not a writer? You oh you. I was you, a magazine writer forever. Sure. Okay. And then I had children, and you know. People may tell you that they raise themselves, but honestly, they do not. <laughs> and because of the way I grew up, like we, nobody paid any attention to us. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to really be there for my kids. And then uh, <laughs> I was like, what have I done? Because it's hard. It's really hard. And so they, by the time I started, you know, they were about to get, they were in middle school or about to be in middle school. I was like, now they don't need me so much. I need to start doing something else. So that's how it all got started. Cause I could do that here at home. Um, and you know, the books, like the children raise themselves, the books write themselves. <laughs> not, not really. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Oh, you're so welcome, honey. You bet. You've been listening to Julia Claiborne Johnson on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio on the SyncBook.com. Check her out at Treefort this spring at beautiful downtown Boise at the end of March. And be sure and check out her book, Be Frank With Me. Um, for more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website, thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much, and youth isn't wasted on the young. Literature is. (laughs) That's my favorite line. It's a good one. Okay. Bye, honey. Everybody's a dreamer. Everybody's a star. Everybody's in movies Doesn't matter who you are There are stars in every city In every house and on every street And if you walk down Hollywood Boulevard Their names are written in concrete Don't step on Brother Carbo As you walk down the boulevard She looks so weak and fragile That's why she tried to be so hard But they turned her into a princess And they sat her on a throne But she turned her back on stardom Because she wanted to be alone You can see all the stars as you walk down Hollywood Some that you recognize 
who succeeded and some who suffered in vain.
because celluloid heroes never feel any pain. I'm celluloid heroes never.